Welcome to Yahoo Finance's podcast. I'm Jen Rogers. And right now I am joined by Andy Serwer. He, of course, is Yahoo Finance's editor-in-chief. And Andy, you recently got to sit down with really one of the most powerful men, not just in banking, but in the business world, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan. What was the occasion? Well, we were talking about uh, J.P. Morgan's uh, annual report, and specifically Jamie Dimon's letter to shareholders, his chairman's letter to shareholders, which he takes uh, quite a bit of time to do and quite a bit of pride in. And it's something that's become a, a bit of a signature event in the business world, even. I, I don't think that's too strong. And it's it's something maybe second only to Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders. And Jamie Dimon has told us that, in fact, he's modeled this after Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders. And it addresses all manner of things at the bank and the economy and the banking sector and politics. And it's a, it's a great read. Why have these letters become important or, you know, we pay attention to them. Why should people pay attention to them? Because annual reports usually are, I don't know, is it rude to say like reading the phone book sometimes? Dry as a bone. Yeah. Well, I and I think it does go back to Buffett, as I said. These have become sort of platforms for chief executives to directly address not only their shareholders, but really the, the country. And it started with Buffett. Jamie Dimon's is very high profile, as I said. Larry Fink from BlackRock is another one that a lot of people read very closely. I'd love it if, say, Jeff Bezos um, really sort of, you know, did this in the same vein that these guys do, too, because I think a lot of people would love to hear what he has to say. Elon Musk, Tim Cook. Um, I think there's really room for this to grow. So uh, Diamond's letter came out. It's uh, some 46 pages long, I believe. Let's dig into some of the highlights that the two of you spoke about. I know that he talked about public policy in here, and it's not unusual for Jamie Dimon to, uh, you know, talk about the government, talk about public policy, talk about changes that uh, he wants to see in those areas. What do you have to say this year? Well, he really did take it on in a much a bigger way this year, though, Jen. And he said, you know, quite honestly, there are a lot of problems um, with our country, and he wanted to address them head on. And he talked about the fact that, you know, we're such in such a bipartisan state now, a partisan state, I should say. Um, in other words, we couldn't get anything done because both uh, parties can't get together and agree on things. And so uh, I think that, you know, he really wanted to, to dig into it. We get a lot of questions from people. So we get it from the press, we get it from shareholders, we get it from employees, and I kind of call those down to what's important. I ask a lot of people in the company, and people you know, my, in my uh, management team, what's important. I can't do all of them, so I get it down to a bunch, and by, a lot of done in the past. So I just re-repeat something I already wrote, or, or maybe there's an important update. So that's how I go about it, and you know, this is the first time I probably ever took on public policy as just a main theme. I've mentioned it before many times, but this is the first time you know, I put it down and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with public policy, which I think is probably tougher than most other issues. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I, I was counting pages, Jamie, and it looked like the 23 out of the 45 or so pages were about regulation and policy. So right. is that the major theme? And then why is that? Yeah, so the major is three sections. The first about the company, why I'm proud of it, what it does, and how we've, you know, how we've scored a couple of major issues to the company, like geopolitics and fintech and all that. The second, it, regulatory, obviously, this is financial regulatory. 
And obviously, I get a million questions from shareholders about what's the right thing to do there, how are you going to go about doing it. It's probably the part that bores most of the people. And the public policy is probably the, the hardest and the longest to try to get the logic down. The other thing, you all remember that I, I still always forget who said it, but the person who said, I'm sorry I wrote you such a long letter, it, it, I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> to get thoughts down and clarity to the people reading it, it it's hard. And, I, and it's not a natural thing. I don't do it a lot. I only write a couple things a year. So uh, it, it's just hard to do that. And going through that process, you know, it makes you really think through what you're saying and why you're saying it. Otherwise, it would be just pablum to you all. You wouldn't, you know, just people, people put words in with no analysis, no examples, no therefores. Uh, so it's hard to understand. President Barack Obama once called Jamie Dimon his favorite banker. And he is very respected uh, among business leaders for the culture that he has able to instill at a very big institution at, at J.P. Morgan. What did he uh, say about that culture and sort of how he does that? Well, you know, I, I think he talks about, um, you know, people being authentic and transparent and, you know, that he expects everyone at the bank to treat everyone else um, he said, the way you treat your mother. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a pretty high standard, I guess, unless you treat your mother badly. Unless you're a teenager. Right, exactly. Not like you're a teenager is what he means. Um, so, but but culture is important. And I think, you know, quite honestly, you know, J.P. Morgan has had its issues, un not unlike other big companies. But I think it does have a strong culture. And, and people are basically proud to work there. And overall, they've got a pretty high level of of employees, and, and I think that really matters. So most people now deal with J.P. Morgan and, uh, you know, would say that this got a pretty strong, positive, consistent culture throughout. So when you take, if you take over a big company, it's hard to do. You know, particularly one that was uh, an amalgam of mergers, and they did have slightly different cultures. But I think the bones of J.P. Morgan Chase were very good. All the companies are part of it. Uh, but we're pretty relentless, and we're relentless right from day one. Tell the facts, get the right people in the room, treat people the way you want to be treated. I can write you a 100-page code of conduct, treat people the way you want to be treated. Treat people the way you'd want your mother to be treated. If you don't know what that is, because you're not quite sure, and sometimes it, it, there is a gray line, go ask someone. Get help of people who've been around and stuff like that. And, uh, and we just drive it all the time, and they see it. You've got to see it. You've all been probably in companies or somewhere where they say one thing and do another. Can you feel free to speak your mind? You know, is it, is it clear that management is open to anyone's ideas or just their friends' ideas? You know, is, uh, is, is it cronyism or is it really a meritocracy? And you, you kids all know. We all see that when you go to these institutions, and, and you've got to drive it. You've got to get rid of the bad people. You've got to promote the good ones. Inside a company, we, we just promoted a gentleman from investment banking to run small business. I got so many people come up saying, that is so wonderful. You know, what happens in other companies sometimes is, you know, there, there they go again. How could they have done that? You know, when you pick the right person, you know that you're, you're walking the walk when you say you're going to put the right people in the right job. So these students out here, I'm sure, are interested in advancing their careers. I, I should say, people mm -hmm. make mistakes, too. Sometimes the mistake's an innocent mistake. And you know, I tell people, you know, because I've, I've dealt with people who say, that person should be fired. I said, that person made a mistake. They could be your brother, your son, your mother, your father. If we're the judge and the jury, you're going to be damn straight. We'd be careful. If they were unethical, they lied, they were completely did something wrong, they, they did it just to further their own bonus, their own career, they're out of the company. I mean, we're quite rigorous and stuff like that. So it doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. So inside the company, like if you read my letters over those years, I talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. I talk about our mistakes. 
and how we fix them and what we did about them so that you're telling your own people all the time it's okay to air issues. If you have the, if you have the top brass at a company spinning everything, then they're telling you it's okay to spin them too, basically. So I think it is important how you message all those things all the time. Jamie Dimon is often very positive, an optimistic person. And in this letter and in talking to him, when you did, I kind of felt like there was not negativity, but maybe more skepticism, more questioning, just that he said he's focused on America's weaknesses right now, which to me doesn't uh, sound like the old Jamie Dimon. Am I wrong there? Or, or why, why does he feel that he needs to focus on America's weaknesses right now? Well, I think he used um, the letter this year as sort of, um, you know, kind of a wake-up call that, you know, sure, he wants to be a bit of a cheerleader and talk about great things that were going on in America, but there are these problems. And so he laid them out um, in a very you know, systematic way, one, two, three, four. And, you know, it's it's very interesting. And, and later he talked about how to address the problems and also talked about our advantages too. But, you know, I think that he wants us to stop, you know, avoiding dealing with the problems and, and really address them head on. I love to sit down sometimes and just make a list, a priori, before you form a judgment about what's important, score it, and then form a judgment. And I did that about the strengths of America and some of the weaknesses of America, okay? So the strengths, and I want to mention them, and, you know, the, or the American public, you got to hear what I'm about to say, okay? We, and this list I'm about to make, no other country has it. And most will give their arm and a leg for half of it, okay? Some have pieces, and some are better than us in some categories, and I'll mention some of those in a second, but we have the best military on the planet, which we're going to have for decades. We have the best military barriers ever built called the Atlantic and the Pacific, which our founding fathers understood exactly how important that was. We have all the food, water, and energy that we'll ever need here if we need it. We've got peaceful and wonderful neighbors in Mexico and Canada. We have no wars with Mexico and Canada, okay? We have the best universities, among the best. We have the widest, deepest, most transparent financial markets in the world. Boy, what would India and China give for those? I mean, the winter reform, it'll take them 20 or 30 years to have that. We have the best businesses, small, medium, and large, great rule of law, very low corruption, uh, um, innovation, and I'm not talking about just the Steve Jobs of the world and Silicon Valley. I'm also talking about when you go to an American company and you ask the receptionist or the, or the uh, administrative assistant, what can you do better? They'll say, well, the, the accounts payable system is terrible, or I don't know why this door doesn't work, or, you know, we, 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 we are, it's the old American attitude to make things better. Take that list, and again, I say this respectfully for China. Not enough food, war, and energy. 500 million people in poverty. Their neighbors, for better or for worse, North Korea, South Korea, Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, Indonesia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, and Russia. They don't have our businesses, they don't have our universities, they don't have our innovation. I mean, so, and I, I say it respectfully, by the way, so I say this, I want people to respect China, not disrespect, like they're very smart. They're very capable. They've come a long way, and we should be in our interest that they go further in a, in a peaceful way. So having made that wonderful, and by compare that to Brazil, India, Russia, Japan, Mexico, uh, it, it, no one's got it, folks. And uh, now th then something is wrong. I mean, you see it in the body politic. We've been growing 1% slower a year than we've, been gro than we've grown for the, 50, for the last 15 years, and we grew the 50 years before that. And I made a list of 
and there's this concept that it's, it's permanent. There's something that's changed. There's no new innovation coming, which I just think is not true. Innovation and technology is like dark matter. It's running through everything all the time. In a million ways, you know, it's not like there was one thing that caused all these innovative things. And, and, uh, but uh, but I, I, by acknowledge we don't have a divine right to success. So my list, the short list, and then I had a longer one. The short list was we did spend several trillion dollars on war in the last 15 years. I've never seen an economist tell me what, what, what that cost us in product. I'm not saying whether the war is right or wrong. I'm not getting the politics of that, but it's a very different thing if you spend trillions here than over here, okay? We are, are, are 300,000 kids a year get advanced degrees here, we send them home now, and I think many years ago they used to stay. They start their businesses, we should give them green cards. These are immigrants, and, and we should keep them here. And, I, and I've got the rest of the list, but labor, ten, our labor, and this just take one little piece of it. People say it's age, it's changed. One piece, that kids, men, 25, 55, participation is down 10%. 25 to 55, okay? In that list, I wrote about that Ray Ordiano, General Ordiano, told me that 70% of kids 17 to 24, okay, are not physically or educated to get in the military anymore. Physically, normally, obesity and diabetes and education, basically math and reading. Okay, and the corporate tax system has been driving brains overseas for years. Uh, our infrastructure, we now grade ourselves, it's it, it, totally embarrassing as an American. I mean, I don't know about you, can't do America, that's not an infrastructure. 10 years to build an average bridge. We haven't built an airport, a major airport in 20 years. China built 75 in the last 10 years alone. Okay, so I go through taxes, education. The inner, there are a lot of inner city schools, 60% of the kids do not graduate. 40% who graduate, aren't prepared for a job. A lot of them are not fully prepared. 60% will never have the American dream opportunity, ever. Okay, we're relegated to a life of less opportunity. Okay, so I go on and on. I say, that's why we're growing slower. It's this list of things that we, we've been unable to fix. We've been sitting here, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, we're to blame. It's no myth, mythical thing, it's no standard, it's not the world changed forever, it's those things. Not, they, by the way, most people do not put them in the economic model. I told you a mortgage issue. I didn't, I didn't see anyone ever say in my economic model, you know, if we went back to proper mortgage underwriting, we'd grow half a percent faster. Maybe they don't believe it, but if I were a lot of people, I'd look at that and say, is that true or not? So a lot of those things, if you look at studies, corporate taxes can add 0.2% a year. The mortgage thing, 0.5% a year. Better immigration policy, 0.2% a year. Better education, 0.2% a year. We're just failing to do it. And so I, I blame ourselves, and, and I think, you know, I, I also am very sympathetic to people who are mad at the, you know, the, the leadership of this country because we are kind of to blame. Who else are you going to blame? And I'm not talking about just big companies, but all people in leadership positions. I've yet to see people in the education system stand at a stage like this and say, we have a national emergency. It is a national emergency. We should treat it like we treated World War II, like we treated smallpox. We shouldn't be acting like, well, there's a political thing and we can't fix it. And so I, I think these are serious issues that they need to be fixed. And you know, maybe one day, unfortunately, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase will be standing right here in this audience explaining to us you know, 30 years from now what happened. What happened? It's happening right now. It's, it, it, this, is a, this is a slow train wreck. And you can see a lot of these things taking place for 20 years, and hopefully we'll get smarter and act on it. But just are you optimistic about it? I mean, just to follow up quickly, and yeah. what can we I, do? I'm optimistic because, um, because America has this, you know, you might laugh a little bit, but has this amazingly resilient political system. It's the longest democracy on the planet today. 
It's been through far worse than today. So go back to the Depression, World War I, World War II, uh, several other depressions. It's resilient. It will find its way. It will break down. And I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic. I think the Trump administration has, when they're talking about some of these things, corporate taxes, infrastructure, education, uh, uh, regulation, I think they're on the right track. Those are the things. And they will help the average American. Like you, it's hard to imagine when we talk about corporate taxes, there are three studies I mentioned in there, and I, I didn't see any that say the opposite, that when you reduce corporate taxes, wages go up, not mm -hmm. down. Okay, and so, and I also have other examples in there that we, we can in, in design policies that can make it work better. He didn't shy away from talking about politics and, and talking about Donald Trump, the president. Can you address that? Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, Jen, that Barack Obama, you know, he was Barack Obama's favorite banker. But, you know, Donald Trump singled him out for praise at a meeting earlier this year saying, oh, you know, and I'm gonna, I get to talk to Jamie Dimon about Dodd-Frank. He knows everything about that. And that's great, Jamie. Um, I, I guess everybody likes, likes Jamie yeah, exactly. Dimon. That's... He's, as I said, he's a popular guy. Right. You know, and I asked him about Donald Trump and, you know, obviously – he doesn't agree with everything that Donald Trump says. And he acknowledged it. But, you know, so there's a pretty quick answer to that is I don't agree with everything anybody says. Um, but, you know, he does make the case that, you know, uh, you root for the pilot of the airplane or the captain of the ship that you're on. And I think that's the metaphor that he used and, you know, made that case. If you, if you travel around the country, forget us, ask a small community bank, can you do another real estate loan in that community? The answer is often no. Can you do small business? Not anymore. They have too, they, the costs are too high, et cetera. So I think there's truth to that statement and that we should just go about fixing it so these banks can go about doing their part. Now, when I went on that policy advisory group, because I know a lot of you are still millennials, uh, stuff like that, I did get a lot of complaints from people about how can you possibly be doing that. Uh, so here's what I told everybody. When you get on the airplane, you better be rooting for the success of the pilot. And you heard that I said I'm a patriot. I will do what I can to help the United States of America. And that includes helping whoever is president. And so that's my view of it. Get in the ring and try to do the best you can to try to make it better. Uh, because that's, I want this country to really do well. So you're talking about engagement. engagement and I guess yeah. the, the point is you don't necessarily agree with everything the president says. Absolutely not. That, that, another unfair thing. That because you, you've, there's no one in that room agrees with everything that everyone says. And, and you know, Mr. Trump doesn't agree with everything he said himself. <laughs> you know, people change their minds and people learn. And so there's this thing, you, you get this thing where people say, you're supporting all his policies. No, I am not. You know, and also he wants to engage in dialogue. So that was a dialogue. You know, he went around the room, was asking a lot of questions, was willing to change his mind and was trying to get, you know, the right people in the room. I'm very comforted by the fact, and I don't know if you've read a lot about it, but, but General Mattis, Secretary of Defense, General Kelly, Homeland Security, and General McMasters are unbelievably respected. Okay, unbelievably. I've spoken to Bob Gates about it, Condoleezza Rice, lots of others. That gives me great comfort. And I would say the same thing personally. I know Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. I think it's obviously different being a diplomat than a CEO, but uh, uh, Steve Mnuchin, Secretary of Treasury, Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, Gary Cohn, National Economic Advisors. These are top professionals. And they, they know a lot of these issues. They want to go out fixing them. And so I'm comforted by that fact that, you know, he's surrounded himself with some very smart, very tough people who, who want to go about fixing it. They're not experts in Washington. 
you know, they, so they need more expertise in how to get this through, which I'm not either, by the way. You know, the legislative process and the political process, which, as you know, is tough. Tougher than we have, what we have to deal with generally. What about all the regulations, the banking regulations that have been put into effect since the financial crisis and which the idea of them getting rolled back after President Trump was elected really fueled quite a rally in banking stocks, J.P. Morgan among them. And this is all evolving right now. What is going to happen with banking regulations? Does he have does he have a roadmap for what he thinks should be done? Yeah, he does. And, you know, he says that regulations add unnecessary costs and create unnecessary complexity. He didn't say that we should get rid of all regulations, just some regulations. And he said that regulations were bad for, in particular, smaller banks, mid-sized banks, regional banks. And I understand that. I mean, I sort of, you know, countered and, and has put his feet to the fire a little bit with that and said, you know, if things are so terrible, how come you know, your bank's doing so well. Right. And what, um, what do you say? And, and then he said, well, it's not it's not me so much. It's these other institutions. And and fair enough. Uh, you know, I think that I mean, I understand that these regulations are complex and onerous and ridiculous. But boy, they better be careful about getting rid of them, because, I mean, lo and behold, we get rid of a ton of the regulations. We have another financial crisis that we can lay the blame at the feet of these institutions. And that would not be good, Jen. We need good regulations. And what people have to start to learn is good, not more or less, not punitive or not punitive, but good. And to have good, you have to constantly be looking at them too. So you should have a permanent cost-benefit, what works, what's the, is it still necessary, et cetera. So that estimate wasn't done by us. I said in the chairman's letter, even if it's an exaggeration and it causes some good stuff, it's, it's a lot. So if you go speak, and forget me, go speak to any small business, any middle market company, any company in America, and they'll tell you the amount of work that they do of worthless reporting, worthless this, worthless that, and sometimes anecdotes are true. So I put some numbers there about you know pages and time and effort, and small business would now say it's the biggest reason. Small business formation is the lowest it's been in any kind of major recovery like this, and the small business people would tell you it's mostly regulation. Some lack of credit, but mostly regulation. So my view is always look at these things and modify it. Don't be Democratic, Republican about it. Don't be knee-jerk about it. Does it work? Why are we doing it? You know, a lot of them were put in place for good intent, and they don't have that. They, or they have huge unintended consequences. And, and in fact, I would tell you the unintended consequences in, in, in regulation is huge. And, you know, and I mentioned several there. So in financial services, we've been, you know, we want to be a reasoned voice. We've not been throw out Dodd-Frank, reverse it all. Absolutely not. We had a crisis. You know, there are legitimate complaints that, that should have been fixed. Many have been fixed. You should, we should congratulate the regulators for that. And some went too far and some have adverse consequences. I mentioned one in there, and just listen close to me in this one, okay? We talk about America. I'm a patriot to, you know, from, from top to bottom about what this country represents for the whole world, about mortgage regulation. So it wasn't Dodd-Frank per se. It was, it was tons of regulators. There are seven people and then 50 states involved in the regulators' mortgages. The rules and regulate, there are 3,000 servicing requirements. I've got how many origination requirements. The cost of a mortgage today, which the consumer's paying for, is 20 basis points more than it was before. That's number one. Because of rules and regulations and the cost of default mortgages and litigation, a lot of mortgage originators, including banks, but not only banks, won't make mortgages to the following because they're too risky. Okay, and it's not that their credit risk is too risky, the risk of something going bad where you get sued and, and stuff like that. So first time buyers, young, immigrant, uh, uh, self-employed where it's very hard to calculate income, 
the ability to pay type thing, people had prior defaults. Most people who had a default in life, most of them were legitimate. But I mean, it was death, divorce, disease, or loss of job. Well, of course you should give those people a second chance. But not if you have a huge litigation risk. So we estimate, and these are our very smart economists of J.P. Morgan, that had we been doing this right five years ago, we'd have been making 300 billion more a year, the industry, 300 billion, a lot to those low, lower people, okay? And a lot of that would have led to new home buyers, which would have led to new jobs. So this hurt lower, the people, the profession of health, it hurt buyers, it hurt jobs, and our economists think it might have hurt the economy by 0.5% a year. And we talk about secular stagnation, 0.5% a year because we were unable to properly fix our mortgage business. And so, th so there are some serious issues, and you, as you grow up in life, analyze the issue. Don't, don't fall into this knee-jerk reaction that it's got to be this way or that way, or think about what it really did. And, and these things, you can always make things better, is my view. So it wasn't just you getting to uh, question Jamie Dimon, put his feet to the fire there. Uh, you guys had business students also involved in this. And I know that he he's looked to, with so much respect, that people want to know what kind of tips he has for getting to where he has, having the kind of life that he has. Does he stay, take a step back at all and give any, any good uh, takeaways for me, Andy, that I can uh, take into my career? Well, for sure. And let me, yeah, I should probably give some context about this interview. We did this interview in Washington, D.C., um, and um, it was in front of an audience of about a dozen groups from a dozen business schools in the Middle Atlantic region. And, um, you know, from schools like the University of Maryland and um, um, the University of Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the students were MBA students. They were there, and, and they were wrapped. I mean, they were really paying very close attention. They were all dressed up. Um, I think some of them were hoping to meet Jamie, and he did mingle afterwards and, and, and speak to many of them. Um, but they had a chance to ask questions, and the questions were really great. I mean, they ranged from policy questions to banking questions to questions about um, – how to get a great job and how to uh, move up in your careers, as you were asking. And, you know, he, he had a lot of ideas about that. And a lot of them just, you know, were common sense ideas about following your heart and making sure that you didn't compromise and, and you know, maintain good ethical standards. But, you know, a lot of times people actually need that kind of reinforcement, Jen, and you're sort of choosing between two things, and you kind of know one of these things might be cutting a corner, but, man, it's an attractive thing to do, and you just shouldn't do it. And I, I think that that kind of reinforcement is, is very worthwhile. You know, Bill Gates gave a great commencement speech in one, one place. He said, do your job well. So <laughs> He walked off. Yeah, so the, you're, there are people already doing a book on you. Okay, and, and the fact is, if I want to know about any one of you in this room, I don't even have to meet you. I can speak to your bosses, your peers, your subordinates, your spouse, your places you work, your teachers. I would know whether you're on time, whether you're ethical, whether you're honest, whether you show up, whether you have clarity, how hard you work, how, how much you study, how much you learn. I would know all that. Write the book the way you want it to be written. So many people say, I want to be like this, but they don't do anything like that. So, you know, and then educate yourself your whole life. Learn by watching other people. You know, not, not, none of us are perfect, and we all have, you know, embedded strengths and embedded weaknesses, and learn how to develop those, and develop, in particular, develop the EQ part, you know, which is clarity, think, working with people, having people trust you. You know, how do you earn people's trust? There, there are a million things you've got to do to be, 
uh, successful in life. And finally, in his own career, he did talk about decisions that he's made when he came out of business school and that uh, he had actually taken a lower paying job at one point at American Express is, uh, I mean, you don't often hear the, the CEO of a company saying like, you know what, Andy, maybe you should go take that lower paying job. Yeah, and I think he meant, you know, take two steps back or one step back, excuse me, for, for two steps forward down the road, really being able to get um, some good experience. And, um, you know, sometimes that's, that's hard to do, but, you know, for him it was, it was very worthwhile. And obviously he's done pretty well, but he's one of these people, you know, it's, it's, you know, who are these leaders, these CEOs? They're, they're obviously very astute um, at the practical parts of their jobs. I mean, understanding, in his case, balance sheets and how banking works, but also they have leadership capabilities. And, you know, those are intangible and difficult, but, you know, practicing public speaking and speaking in front of groups and, and being honest and looking people in the eye goes a long way. And all of us have to work with other people. So those are, those are important skills, I think, for all of us. Well, it is uh, an impressive read, again, uh, over 46 pages, taking a page from the Oracle of Omaha himself, from Warren Buffett. And as you said, hopefully we're going to get more of these letters in the future from some of the big CEO names out there, because it's great to get a little bit of a peek into their thinking. Andy Serwer, the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance, thank you so much. I'm Jen Rogers. This has been Yahoo Finance's podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe.